All right, it's confession time again. I was reading my Bible this week and I was wrong. All right, well, it's getting a little bit easier for me to say that, that I was wrong uh, than before, uh, but um, it's still hard, right? It's still hard to admit that I was thinking about the Bible and I had this thought in my head and it wasn't the right thought. I'll clue you in on what it was. We were having Bible study and we we're talking about Acts chapter 15. And uh, it, it says that James stood up and said something. And, and I, I said that this was probably James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John. And somebody else made the remark of like, no, they thought it was uh, James, Jesus' half-brother. Uh, and we didn't get into the debate or whatever. Um, but I was thinking like, ah, maybe you could argue that, but I'm not so convinced. And um, but <laughs> like later, I don't know, it was that day or the next day I was looking. And, and in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, the, the James of Peter, James and John, he was put to death. So he was dead. So clearly in Acts chapter 15, it wasn't James, uh, the brother of John. It was a different James. Okay. So probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, so I tell you this story, though, uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, to, to remind you that I could be wrong, so just because I say it, don't assume that I know the, what the heck I'm talking about. Um, always keep that in mind, please. Uh, but also, uh, to bring up another hypothetical, okay? So let's say that I had started a church of uh, James, the brother of John's uh, wonderful address in Acts chapter 15. And I, and I named it after James being the brother of John. And, and I required everybody who became a member of my club to affirm that they believe that the James speaking there was actually James, the brother of John. Uh, and then somebody years later came by and they pointed out to me, you know, James was dead by this point. And then they just pointed it straight out in, in Acts chapter 12. And, and, and then I thought, oh, crud, well, I've got a logo that's like the real James Church, and I got a I got a building, and I got all these members of this church, and we're all super proud that we believe that this was James, the brother of John, and our whole identity is like somewhat wrapped up in this being James, the brother of John. So, so it's just not really a possibility for me to acknowledge that that was James, uh, not James, the brother of John. And so then I might start scrambling, and I might say, oh yeah, well it looks like that, you know, at face value, but you really have to understand um, that. Uh, that part there, uh, Luke just got that out of order in the book of Acts. And so uh, James, the brother of John, he actually didn't die until after that council. And, and Luke just sort of mixed up the dates there. And that's why it looks like he was dead at that point. Um, and, uh, and and that might not be a convincing argument. So I could say, oh, well, you know, it's also possible that, um, you know how Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet he will live. Like, I think Jesus was telling the truth there. Uh, and so what that means is that James died, but then he was alive again. He, he came out of the grave. And yeah, and in fact, that's why they let him have so much power in the church is because uh, he had died and he came back to life. So they assumed that he was God's, you know, chosen leader for the church. So yeah, yeah, James did die in James chapter 12, but he came back to life. And now here he is in James 15, right? And and you could make those arguments, but the, the deal is you would only convince people that wanted to be convinced, right? Anybody who, who didn't want to be convinced of that, they would look at you and they'd just be like, oh, come on, please, for real? Is that the way it is? Um, you can't be serious. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm totally serious. And then they would go, whatever, right? And, and they probably wouldn't even fight with you because you're just being obtuse, right? You're just, you're just being stubborn. Well, I think what happens actually is 
in modern Christianity, I think this happens a lot more than we really give it credit for. Okay, so we tend to see what we want to see. So imagine you go out in the in the in the park and you're looking up at the clouds and you say, "Hey, what do you see?" You know, and your friend they're looking up and they say, "Well, I see a cat over there and a and a and a dog over there and a horse over there." And you're like, "I don't see any of that. I see a." I see some bombs over there and some tanks over there and, you know, and, and, and you argue about what they are and somebody else is like, no, 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 that's not it at all. That's a balloon. And, and, and the reality is like by asking those questions, like it, it tells us more about us than it tells us about the clouds. <laughs> this is why uh, psychologists, they use that Rorschach test, you know, where they take ink blots that, that aren't really pictures of anything. And then they ask you what you see and, and the, the responses you give tell them something about what's going on in your head, right? Uh, they don't sit there and say, well, we got 15 votes for this being a pig and 20 votes for it, you know. They're not trying to find out what the shape is. They're just, they know if they give you vague things, uh, what's inside you will be revealed. And, and this happens when we, you know, when we look at clouds or ink blots. It, it also can happen when we listen to lyrics on the radio, but it also happens when we read the Bible, right? You're reading the Bible and you see something. Why do you see it? You know, do you see it because it's the thing that's there and it's the only possible thing to see it? Or do you see it because that's what you want it to say? Do you understand it to say something because that's what you've been trained to see there? Um, and, and of course, this doesn't guarantee that you're wrong. Uh, but what it, it should cause us to do as we remember this is it should cause us with a little bit more humility to be able to say, uh, here's what I think it means, but you're welcome uh, to prove me wrong. And if somebody disagrees with us, uh, we want to remind ourselves uh, to be the kind of person who says, if you make a, a good biblical case, I would indeed change my mind, right? We don't want to be the guy, right, who says, no, that James in Acts 15, that is James, the brother of John, period, no matter what you say in the Bible, I'm never going to give that up, that belief, because that's who we are. Like, that's not a good way to do theology. It's not healthy for us. It's not healthy for our churches. I wanted to bring up a few places where I sort of see this happening uh, in the church, and I want to call you, if you're one of these people who have, um, who is fixated on one of these things, I, I, I want to challenge you to open your ears and open your eyes a little bit. We'll talk a little bit more on how, uh, on how more practically to do this, um, but I want to challenge you not to get fixated on a certain way of looking at the Bible, which might prevent you from knowing and from learning and from growing. So it was it was first in, and I think I mentioned this before, it was first in um, Ender's Game where Orson Scott Card says, you know, in order to learn something, you have to acknowledge that you were wrong or that there was something that you didn't know. And most of us are trained as Christians never to acknowledge that we were wrong. Uh, we're never even to entertain the idea that we might be wrong. And, and we can call that faith, uh, but sometimes it's not it's not faith. It's just uh, obtuseness. It's just being bullheaded and stubborn. Uh, if somebody lies to you and, and you refuse to ever uh, believe otherwise, then you're going to spend your whole life believing a lie, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean that you should go around distrusting anything anybody ever tells you, but it does mean that we should keep our, we should keep our minds open, uh, if you will. So, I'll explain to you a little bit why, I, why I'm going down this road again, because I think we've been through here in, in various shades, um, and I don't think we're quite, I don't think the soil's quite prepared um, 
in most of us. So uh, a couple more examples. So you bring up the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. When does Jesus return, right? Everybody's talking about the end. They're thinking about the end. There's war going on in Israel. This could be a big sign of the time. Uh, this could be it, my friends. This could be it. And so people are asking questions about the return of Christ, and our attention is back on it. And then the question is, is Jesus going to come back before the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation? And unfortunately, at these, at these junctures, people, sometimes they just dig in their heels, and then they start thinking like, if you don't agree with me on this, you're the enemy, right? So I heard an interview that was just done like this week on YouTube, and the guy said, well, I believe in basic Christian stuff like the pre-tribulation rapture. And I was like basic Christian stuff, because I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I think the return of Christ is after the tribulation. Um, again, I could be wrong. Feel free to prove me wrong, right? Uh, but I thought, he just took that for granted, like, oh, it's a basic Christian guarantee that the rapture is pre-tribulation. And if you, if you check history, actually, if you do your research, you'll find out that the pre-tribulation rapture is a belief that's probably no more than 200 years old. Um, we don't see evidence of people teaching about a pre-tribulation rapture until like the 19th century, I think the 1800s. Uh, so what he took as basic, I think, is is sort of a new innovation. Okay, I, I was reading another author just last week, and um, and he made this statement. No, it was a sermon I was listening to. He said this statement of like, well, the first thing you got to understand about our topic is that the church has believed this all throughout history. Um, but it's actually not as old a belief as he thinks it was. So, uh, pre-tribulation rapture, is that one where you're like, you dug in your heels? How about spiritual gifts? Uh, spiritual gifts, this idea that uh, some people in the church will teach that certain manifestations, certain displays of the Holy Spirit's power stopped after the Bible was canonized. Uh, and other people in the church, of course, will say that, no, all of those gifts still happen. So the question is, uh, what is it? And often the answer we come to is not based on objective Bible study, um, but based on other things. Uh, it could be based on our desires or our trauma, past memories. I, I once had a, had a guy, we were talking about this, and he said, you know what, I don't really care what the Bible says on this. I'm not going to, I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? So, so he acknowledged, sadly, uh, that he was ignoring the Bible's witness and the Bible's teaching on this topic because he just felt that it was too destructive and, and too divisive, and so he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Which I think that's not a good way, right, to have a true and righteous perspective on the matter uh, to say, I don't care what the Bible says about it. Um, I had somebody else tell me uh, not too long ago, we were talking about a different issue, and they said, you know what, I don't really understand how this works, but it's a belief that I'm going to hold to no matter what. It is non-negotiable. And I thought, well, okay, so if you're wrong, you've just committed to staying wrong forever. Uh, isn't it? Wouldn't it be healthier to say even like, I'm 99% sure I'm not wrong, but if anybody could ever prove me wrong from the Bible, I suppose I would change my mind, right? But that idea that had been so in, ingrained in this person since the time they were a child that they, they just weren't willing to even consider that it could be wrong. Uh, another one that, that comes up, or that came up uh, not too long ago for me, uh, was the inspiration of Scripture. I was a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church of America, and in the EFCA, the official doctrinal statement says that they believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. That is this idea that every single word in the Bible is there in the original manuscripts, in the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, 
That every single word is there because God specifically intended for that exact word to be used. That somehow he worked with human authors, but but the words weren't really their choice. It was it was his spirits guiding them to write those exact words. And uh, it's a non-negotiable in the EFCA. Um, and so I was an ordained evangelical free church pastor, and I uh, read some things in the scriptures that didn't seem to fit with this that idea of looking at the scriptures. So I went back and I just asked the question, does the Bible teach this doctrine? Uh, and, and so I went back and I thought, okay, when I got ordained, I had to defend this belief. I had to make a case for this belief using scripture because the EFCA is a, uh, uh, it's an evangelical Protestant denomination. It says our sole authority is scripture. So I said, could I prove this doctrine from the Bible? And I went back to the verses that I used to use to prove the doctrine, and I found out that they didn't actually prove the doctrine at all. Now, they didn't disprove the doctrine either, uh, but the reasons that I had for proving the doctrine, I realized, weren't sufficient to convince somebody who didn't already believe the doctrine. And so I thought, I don't think this is a biblical doctrine. I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. But because I came to that conclusion, of course, um, then I had to uh, relinquish my ordination and resign from my job as pastor at the church. Uh, I talked to another pastor in town a couple weeks ago, and he like he didn't even have a category for that because uh, he didn't he doesn't believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture either, and he couldn't he couldn't see why it would be required of anybody uh, to believe that because he thought it was pretty clear that 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 wasn't true of the Bible. It seemed obvious to him. So what he saw as clear and obvious. Uh, the evangelical free church says is clear and obvious evidence that you don't uh, believe in the authority of Scripture, right? So, uh, again, we bring our ideas with them. I used to, 10 years ago, uh, I used to believe that doctrine was true and unquestionable, and I, it was more because I had been taught it and just been brought up believing that, uh, and not because I had just sort of randomly come into reading my Bible one day and thought, I wonder, what is with this book? And then I read it, and it just said very clearly that doctrine, right? So another conversation I had with the same local pastor was a conversation about uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ in communion. When you partake in communion, uh, what's going on there? The Catholic Church will say that when the Mass is said that the body, that the bread and the wine become the substance of Jesus' body and blood— that they stop being bread and wine and they start being Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, and that you, then you take that into you. It is it is God giving you grace. Uh, my uh, pastor friend here in town, he doesn't believe that, but he believes that in some way, spiritually, that Jesus is present when he partakes of the bread and the cup, and therefore that those elements, those sacraments, when you partake of them, you are receiving God's grace in some spiritual and tangible, intangible way, and and he um, he wouldn't be able to perhaps describe exactly the way all Lutherans believe it, because he told me many Lutherans have different theories in their head of exactly how that works, but they do believe Jesus is present. Uh, if you come out of a Baptistic background or evangelical free background like I did, uh, then typically uh, we think of it as, as a memorial thing, that that there's nothing spiritually that we're taking into us in the receiving of the bread and the cup, um, but that it is it is what is it significant is the exercise of our will in this process and obedience to Jesus' command to do this and remember him. 
right? So Christians across the spectrum, they all think their belief is right and biblical and true, and they all have a scripture to cite, but they disagree with each other. And so why do you, why would it seem so clear to the Baptists that it means one thing, and to the Lutherans that it means one thing, and to the Catholics that it means a different thing? Or recently, not too recently, I suppose, it's been a little while now, uh, Francis Chan uh, came out teaching that he said, um, he said, I think I was wrong. I always took it in the, like the Baptistic sense as a, as a memorial, as, as just a, a symbol, but nothing significant, you know, nothing real and tangible there. And, and he said, now he's sort of come around to this place of thinking of it, I would say, probably in a more Lutheran sense of believing that you're actually partaking of Jesus in some sense there as, as his disciples, right? So he's kind of changing his mind. Now, here's the deal. Francis Chan is Francis Chan. He can kind of get away with it. Uh, but if Francis Chan was serving in a little Baptist church in, you know, in rural America, and he came out and he said that, there's a decent possibility uh, that he might get fired by his church for teaching something that's untrue. Um, it's it's hard to know, right? <laughs> or take the idea of authority in the church, right? So the Catholic Church believes that there is authority in the official recognized structures of the church, that God has intended the authority of the church to help safeguard the doctrine of the church. And so the Catholic Church leans on scripture and tradition and the magisterium, the, the Catholic Church, is, as these ways in which we know that we're getting true doctrine. And uh, take your average independent fundamentalist Baptist church, they won't even recognize the authority of like a regional overseer or another church. They're pretty much like, no, it's only the Bible, uh, and that's it, period. Now, the ironic thing is, as I was doing this study about the inspiration of Scripture, I came to this realization that, that the reason that we believe that the Old Testament is 39 books and the New Testament 27, and that together they are completed Scriptures, is that that's what the church and their joined authority has agreed with. And so the Bible itself doesn't teach, you know, Genesis 1-1 isn't, uh, pay attention when we've got 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New, the Bible will be done, right? It doesn't say that. Um, and so uh, the Bible itself doesn't teach 66 books in the canon. The church uh, came to that conclusion. So even if you take the doctrine of sola scriptura, only scripture as your authority, like the very books that you describe as scripture, they're based on the authority of the church, which is kind of ironic, right? So uh, me being not a Catholic, um, not a Roman Catholic, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not overly inclined to look to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, but the reality is, is that uh, even when you attempt to deny the authority of the church, authority, structures, magisterium, whatever you want to call it, um, over church doctrine, like the reality is even your local independent fundamentalist Baptist church, uh, one of their basic building stones, the, the very doctrine of sola scriptura is when you peek underneath the foundation, you find a, a church council saying these are the books that belong in the Bible. It's ironic and it's really funny. Um, and, and what's more interesting is, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but when, when Paul writes, for instance, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, to him, Scripture was the term the writings, and his writings would have been the Old Testament. Because the New Testament hadn't been written or completed yet, right? And so when Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he couldn't have been referring to the New Testament. He was referring to the sacred writings. And when he said to, to 
to Timothy, you know the sacred writings and how they're sufficient for your salvation. He was saying the Old Testament is sufficient to show you Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's enough. That's all you need to fill in the blanks and realize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And when we read that, we think it refers to the 66 canonized books of the Protestant uh, Bible, um, but Paul wouldn't have had that thought, right? So uh, in some ways, you know, as I, as, I, as I study Scripture and as I step back, I start to see things where I realize, like, I was doing this. In many ways, I was taking for granted things that I had been taught, and they often had a Bible verse or two or even 12 attached to them. But just because there's some Bible verses that are sort of seem to agree with these ideas is not proof that they're actually uh, true. And sometimes if you'll stop and you'll listen to other believers in and not just believers who already agree with you, but believers who disagree with you. And you say, make your biblical case for this. And if you listen, sometimes you'll you'll learn things and you'll you'll realize that you might realize that the case is not as cut and dry as you thought it was, which is healthy. It brings us humility. But you might also come to this conclusion of like, oh my goodness, I've been wrong. I, I just believed this because it was the only argument I ever considered, right? This morning, we, we were in Bible study with, um, with some guys meet up with on Wednesday mornings and we're talking about we're talking about the crucifixion and uh, today's verse of the day from the Bible app was uh, Psalm what is it I'll just read it off my watch here Psalm 147:3 he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds right what a beautiful picture of Jesus he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds and I thought oh this is not just about like someday you go to heaven when you die the, the Messiah, the Savior, he comes, he heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. And it reminded me of Isaiah 53. So if you talk to, um, if you talk in charismatic circles and you bring up Isaiah uh, 53, there's this passage in there that says, by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed. And in Pentecostal charismatic uh, circles, that scripture is interpreted to mean that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price and he made available physical healing for people, for, for those who belong to him, for Christians. And uh, if you're in a more of a cessationist background, more of a, I don't know, de depending, I, I won't name a denomination or anything, but if you're in more of a cessationist leaning doctrine or outright cessationist uh, denomination, like you won't, you will say, no, that's not talking about physical healing. That's that's talking about something else. That's not a promise of healing. Uh, but it struck me that, you know, when you think about it, the, the denominations that see miraculous healings uh, far more frequently, far more often, are the ones who just take that at face value and they say, you know what, Jesus died so that you could also be healed physically. He didn't just carry about, care about your eternal soul. He cared about you. He cared about binding up your broken heart, right? He cared about bringing healing to you. And I sort of had this these things coming together where I thought, you know what, it's perhaps been my perspective on this, my, my unwillingness to consider that that might be a possibility stands in the way of me asking God to heal people. And maybe I should just take this as a reflection of the character of Christ. He is the one who cares not just about where we spend eternity, but the state of our heart today, that he would bind up our broken hearts, and the state of our physical healing as well, that he would care enough to heal those things. And if I look at Jesus in the Gospels, frequently it says, and everyone they brought to him, he healed. And then it says when he went to his hometown, he couldn't do many mighty miracles or many miracles there and not many mighty works because they didn't, they didn't believe in him. 
right? So Jesus goes to his hometown and they don't open out the, you know, empty out the hospitals and bring everybody to Jesus and say, heal him. Everybody's kind of like, ah, eh, that's just Jesus. He's the carpenter. Like, what can he do for me? But when he went elsewhere, the people who expected and they trusted and they believed they came and they came, they found healing. And so when we talk about these things, I think what, what I what I want to say here is that we, you take something like this and you say, if you're if you're sick and you read Isaiah 53 and you say, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. If you look at that and you say, oh, that can't be about healing, like you won't call on Jesus to heal you. And if you won't, you probably won't be healed by him. If you don't interpret that to be about the compassion that God has for us and his willingness to do to bring us to wholeness, like you'll call the doctor, you won't call Jesus. And this is not to say, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Christians should never call the doctor. And in fact, I think it's a good idea uh, to call the doctor. Um, but I also think like if if you see this, then then the first thing you do when you have a need for physical healing, the very first thing you do is you say, okay, Jesus, you're the guy who healed the sick and you're the guy who bound, the, bound up the brokenhearted. So would you please heal me? Right. And you might you might treat James 5 where he says, call the elders, right, and have them come and pray over you, and the prayer of faith will make the sick man well. You might actually do that <clears throat> instead of just uh, assuming God won't heal you and then taking every uh, modern medical uh, miracle for the best that it can offer, which, again, I'm not against. Uh, <laughs> God gives us great wisdom, and it makes the world a much better place, and there's many wonderful medical advances that I am very thankful to God for. Uh, but in some ways, we see what we want to see, what we've been trained to see. And sometimes it might be worth saying, well, what if I'm wrong? So here's the question. Where do we go from here? Well, I, I, I have to admit, um, the, one of the reasons that I, that I keep bringing this up and I keep harping on this is, is primarily because God has been doing some work in me and repeatedly uh, bringing me back to presuppositions that I've had about the Bible and about what's true, and he is shaking them, and he is, uh, he is asking me to go back and to study the scriptures and to say, is that actually what it teaches, or is there something else there? Because I have been very, um, I've been a very young man in an in a emotional, like, cognitive sense of thinking I know everything my whole life, and ideas typically come pretty natural to me. And so I've spent a lot of time like just seeing things and assuming they were true and then proclaiming them like they're unquestionable truth. And 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 God keeps showing me things where I was misunderstanding or misinterpreting or just even outright wrong about stuff. Um, of course, you know, I I was ordained in a church by defending with all confidence a belief. Uh, years ago that just this year I came back and I said, I can't see the Bible teaching that, right? So <laughs> clearly there have been some some shaking ups in, in what's been going on and, and God continues to do that. And as I do it, in some ways it's it's freeing because it helps us to see scripture. Once it starts to all sort of gel together, the more clearly you see scripture, the less you you find yourself having to fight against it. And when we, in our faith, in our pursuit of God, when we don't feel the need to defend the old way of thinking, uh, it frees us up to grow, to see God more clearly, uh, but also just to enjoy God himself. 
Like we don't find ourselves always stuck in this battle of like trying to defend what I think, which is what sort of defines me. But we find ourselves free to come uh, to God and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And to say, uh, as the psalmist did, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. So the first thing that I would that I would call you to, that I would encourage you to, is this. Number one, don't give up on truth. Right? So it's it's popular these days for people to sort of deconstruct their faith. They say, well, I was taught this argument, I was taught this doctrine or this idea or this argument, and it's bogus. Right? And so I'm just gonna wash my hands of the whole thing. I'm just gonna give up on God. You can't trust the Bible, whatever, I'm I'm done. And this happens, and it happens far too often, and it, and it happens with celebrities and famous people, and then we all hear about it. And, um, and, it, and it even, sadly, sometimes it, it happens with pastors where they, where there's this temptation, I think, that Satan wins this tremendous victory in, in us if we conclude that just because I was taught and convinced by something that was wrong, and that I now see it and I know it's wrong, like, just because I was wrong before means I can never be right and I can never know truth. And so why even bother trying? So let's just go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And I don't, that is not the, that is not a biblical way of seeing things. I don't think it's a Christian way of think, seeing things. I don't think it's a wise way of seeing things. Uh, even if we, if, if we can't be guaranteed to have a perfect understanding of all truths out there, it doesn't mean that there's not great value in seeking after truth. So the first thing I would say is, uh, when if you go back and your, your beliefs about, I don't know what it is, you know, is the King James Version the only Bible we should read? Or, or does Jesus come back before or after the tribulation? Or, or you know, those questions or any of another million ones, um, if you come to the conclusion of like, you know what, I'm not so sure what I was taught was true, don't give up on truth. Just come back to the word, humbly continue to seek God there and watch as he shows you truth, right? Listen to some more people. And that's the second thing, right? So we need to listen carefully. I had this happen. I was talking with, I was actually another pastor not too long ago, and I brought up a, a I brought up a question that I had been, you know, sort of uh, working over in in scripture, in my study of scripture, and and uh, and I brought up the question, and he, and he was just like, "Well, that's not true," and you know, and and he didn't even listen to anything that I was saying or uh, any of the questions I had or any of the scriptures like I wanted to discuss this with him. He just. He didn't even hear it. He wouldn't even let, he just, he knew it was wrong. And he just, you know, he quoted like two, two passages about me. And then he started talking about the heretics that believe that too. And, um, and that's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but not much, sadly. Uh, and, and he didn't listen. And so I think he, I think he's, he might be wrong on that issue. But even though I was trying to sort of get some extra insight and engage with him on the topic, uh, he wasn't willing to even start engaging on the topic, which means if you can't start engaging on the topic, you'll never discover uh, if you need to change your mind on it. And so I, when I say listen carefully, I mean this, like when somebody says something that you that you think is clearly wrong, uh, and maybe every Christian you've ever known has thought it's wrong, uh, but but they want to explain it to you, just listen. Just listen. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid of things that are untrue. If you know what's true, and you can stand on it, and it's really reliable, then, then we shouldn't be phased by, by untrue ideas. Uh, somebody the other day mentioned that, um, that they believe the earth is flat. And my first thought was like, are you serious? But then my second thought was like, you know what? He's wrong, uh, but let me at least listen to him. And he didn't say much. He said, you can, you can go find plenty of information on the internet if you want. 
And so I said, well, I'm okay. I didn't argue with him. Um, and I did go back online uh, later that day. And I thought, how do I even engage with this guy? Like, what is he even, like, where would these ideas even come from? And so I did some reading on the internet and uh, found sort of some of the, I guess it's really common these days for people, not super common, but a lot of people these days are questioning, is the world flat or round? Um, and so I did some reading of those things. And, and there are, I think, a lot of insurmountable difficulties, evidence that you know, like James died in chapter 12, how can he be talking in chapter 15 kind of <laughs> questions, uh, insurmountable arguments against the flat earth theory. But nonetheless, like I didn't become a flat earther um, just because I listened to the guy or I wanted to understand what his argument was. Does that make sense? So like, if you really have truth on your side, then then listening to somebody make a case for the other side, it's not gonna kill you, right? Because you have the truth and you know it and you're solidly grounded. And if you're a Christian and you're solidly grounded in the word and you know it's true because the word teaches it, like there's no threat to you to take five minutes out of your life and listen to somebody who's saying something that disagrees. Now, there's a, you know, on the off chance, on the like 0.5% chance that you didn't know it as well as you thought you did, and they bring up a different way of, of looking at things like you could really come out ahead there, right? So uh, people don't change denominations in the American church uh, because they're just stupid, right? And, and this happens uh, quite regularly if you look around that people will move from one denomination to a different or to a different one because something that they assumed was true, which all of the people in one denomination sort of share in common, what happens is they realize that it wasn't true and they change their mind on something. And so then, I'm not sure this is a great thing, right? But then they go and they find a group of people who do agree with them um, on those things sort of natural to be around, uh, want to be around people who agree with us, uh, but it does in some ways prevent us from growing much, okay? Here's another thing you can do in this pursuit is uh, pay attention to the weird stuff. So Dr. Michael Heiser made this point. He said, the things in scripture that are hard to understand are often the important things. And the reason for that is that if they're hard for you to understand, it's because your big picture, right? It's because whatever your big picture looks like, this little bit doesn't fit into the big picture. And sometimes the reason for that is because your big picture is distorted. And if this bit of scripture doesn't fit with your big picture, you shouldn't just assume that your big picture is right and the little part is wrong. You should be willing to consider like, what if my big picture is wrong and the little picture doesn't fit? So in my last episode where I talked about Jewish monotheism and the Elohim in Psalm 82 and in Deuteronomy 32, that was one of those little things that didn't really, it didn't jive, it didn't fit very well. And then once I adjusted my big picture, as I learned a lot from Dr. Heiser, my big picture adjusted, all of a sudden, a bunch of little things, they didn't, they didn't not fit anymore. They started to make sense. And why? Because now my big picture is, has adjusted in a way that is that is consistent with more scripture, right? So as we learn, like if you find something that doesn't seem to fit and that's weird, uh, you don't have to get the answer for it right now. You should, uh, you don't, you don't have to discount it, but be willing to consider like maybe the reason that it doesn't fit easily is because my grid for seeing everything is wrong, okay? So I've been doing a lot of that uh, lately. Uh, another thing we can do as I, as I wrap up here really quick is we can choose to never ossify. So to ossify is this, that you, uh, to, if, when, you're, when you're an infant, like when you're growing up, 
a lot of your the, the stuff in your body is cartilage. Uh, it starts as this soft sort of flexible tissue, like this stuff in your ear is cartilage. And then as you grow your bones, which were started basically as cartilage, they, they ossify, they turn into bone, right? They become harder and harder and more firm. Uh, when we, when one of our kids was, was a toddler, I don't know, um, a year or so old or, old or something, they dropped something really heavy on their foot. And we as parents were like, oh no, what's going on? Poor kid, maybe just crush the bones in their feet. And we took him to urgent care. And the nurse looked at us and she's like, well, I suppose if, if it was a really big, heavy thing, then we can x-ray it. But she said, the odds of it breaking are almost nil because all those bones in there, they're not bones yet. They're just cartilage, right? That's soft and squishy. So they took an x-ray and she's like, yeah, so you can't even, the bones are really faint because they're not, they're not hard bones like an adult's foot. Like if you drop that on your foot as an adult, it might cause a fracture, but cartilage doesn't fracture. So our beliefs as Christians, often we want them to become bones. We want them to be hard and unyielding and unflexing. And, and we want to get the truth, capital T truth. And then once that truth is there, like it becomes incapable even of adjusting whether large or small to better fit the biblical witness and we just say no this is true and if the bible doesn't fit it then we have to we have to shape the bible around our belief instead of being able to shape our beliefs to the bible right and so if if once we say like this is the truth period i'm not going to question it we have ossified we've become so hard and flexible that we're not able to learn and grow anymore right you can't learn and grow and 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 improve in your in your understanding of the Bible. So one of the debates I was going through with our church when we were talking about my perspectives on scripture and 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 our our elders were saying like what do you believe about scripture? And I and I told them a number of things like how I looked at scripture, what I understood about it. But but I said to them I one of the things I said to them is look, I'm done with doctrinal statements. Because if you ask me to write a doctrinal statement right now, of all the things that I know to be true, I would write it down, but then tomorrow I would be unable, I would not be free to let the Bible change my mind on those issues. I would lock myself into one place in time, and then I would prevent myself from being free to, to follow the Bible wherever it might lead. And I'm done with that. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to take a snapshot of my theology at one point in time and then force myself to hold to it for the rest of eternity. So I said, frankly, if you asked me to write a doctrinal statement and then the whole church would, would sign it and agree with it, I wouldn't even do that. Because I think, personally, I think that one of the greatest things that the church ever hurt itself with was this creating of man-made sets of doctrine that define us as a as a church organization or as a group and we take a snapshot of doctrine we say this is the truth and if you don't believe it you can't be one of us you have to leave right and i think that is a destructive thing in the church and um i think it's a bad idea right? I'm not sure I have a brilliant idea of the great replacement for doctrinal statements of that sort. I've got some ideas. This is not the place for them. But certainly as a person, you don't have to create a doctrinal statement to get other people to agree with you, right? You personally can say, I am willing 
to keep this as my operating definition, right? This is what I think is true right now. But as I read and study the Bible, I'm willing to change my mind on anything as long as I'm convinced so by the Bible, right? I think that's a pretty safe place to be. In some ways, it sounds scary, like, well, uh, what if the Bible taught you that you had to worship Buddha? And I would say sort of facetiously, like, well, if the Bible teaches you that you should worship Buddha, then you should worship Buddha. But I'm not worried about that because the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, and I've never seen any trace of anything in the Bible that would lead me to worship Buddha. And so I'm not worried about that. But if you were to make an unanswerable argument from that by Scripture alone, and, and I was convinced by it, then I would respond in kind, right? I'm not worried about that, right? I'm not worried that the Bible is going to uh, teach me that I should um, eat only blueberries for the rest of my life. I'm I'm not worried about that. Like, if the Bible uh, did teach that, then I would want to do it. But I'm not losing sleep over it, right? So uh, if the Bible's your authority, the Bible should be able to define your belief on anything. And then here's the big one. And here's kind of where I've wanted to, to go. Um, important movements usually begin with a crazy person. Let me say that again. Important movements usually begin with a crazy person. If something is broken or if something is not yet to its fullness and everybody does something one way, then in order to exceed that or in order to grow out of that or, or in order to correct that, somebody is basically going to have to tell everybody that they're wrong. So with the Protestant Reformation started, in the 1500s, Martin Luther looked at, at the Catholic Church, and he, and he didn't say the Catholic Church was all wrong. He said there's some really broken things in the Catholic Church, and we need to fix this. You know, that's why it was called the Reformation, right? It had to be reformed and not replaced. It wasn't, the, it wasn't intended to be the Protestant replacement, right? He said we want there's some things broken in the Catholic Church that need to be fixed. You know what? He was swimming way against the current because everybody did and said and thought something one way. Now, Martin Luther wasn't alone. There were other people that had similar ideas, right? This wasn't totally foreign, but if you just looked at the majority, the vast majority of every people, everybody just said the Catholic Church is right. That's the way it should be. And Martin Luther uh, was one of the weird, crazy people who decided to question it. And there was great sort of danger and risk to him. And what happened, what came out of it is that the Protestant Reformation came. And if, if you're a Protestant, obviously you believe that it fixed a lot of the doctrinal problems in the Catholic Church. But here's the fascinating thing uh, that as a Protestant you don't usually hear about, is that as a response to that, the Catholic Church actually started what was now called the Counter-Reformation. So the Catholic Church being confronted, the Roman Catholic Church being confronted with these 95 theses and, and a bunch of uh, people like sort of saying, well, we don't agree with that and that and that in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church actually looked in the mirror and said, wow, we've got some clergy abuses that need to be corrected, and we have sort of lost sight of spreading the gospel, and we need to do that, right? And so the Catholic Church actually, as a response to this, had their own reformation, right? They fixed some things that were broken, and, and the Catholic Church will even look and say, like, uh, there were things that were not good going on in the church that needed to be addressed and needed to be fixed. And and simply Martin Luther's sort of boldness in challenging it was necessary to shake things up. So the the Catholic Roman Catholic Church didn't reform in all the ways that Martin Luther perhaps wanted it to. Um, uh, and But nonetheless, great reformation happened 
uh, among believers, Christ followers, uh, inside and, I would say, outside of the Roman Catholic Church. So there is this uh, reality that we need to understand that if something important is going to happen, usually it's going to begin with a crazy person. Imagine if you grew up in a Muslim household and all your family and all your friends and everybody you knew was Muslim and uh, you were a member of Islam and that was it, end of story, and everybody who knew what was true was Muslim. And then one day, uh, Jesus appears to you in a dream, as often happens in the Muslim world, and said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And you said, oh my, and you decided to convert to being a Christian. You would be the only one out of everybody, right, who was, you know, seeking to honor uh, God. And you would be the only one. And you would be fighting upstream against that current. You would be the crazy person. You would be shunned. But that doesn't mean you would be wrong. When you came to Christ, right, then all of a sudden, all these things would start to make sense. And then you would begin to pray for your family, and, and Lord willing, God would also bring them with you. And maybe someday you might get to the point where your whole family converted. And then you would say, well, praise God that although everything I had ever been taught that was true, even though I questioned that, what I found was truth. If you're a Jew, the most, if you're a non-Jesus following Jew, right? The most important thing that you can do is, is swim against the stream and be the crazy person. And you, if you're in a, in a church that has a belief, whatever that belief might be, however big or however small, that you're not convinced is true by Scripture. And in fact, as you read Scripture, you, you grow more and more convinced that it's not true. I want to encourage you, follow Scripture where it leads. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, that's what I hope this podcast will encourage you to do. Um, not perhaps the same sort of reformation as Martin Luther did, but the church, I would say, every day, always, for its whole life, has always been in need of reformation. We're in this constant cycle of people getting off course and needing to be brought back to truth. And the minute that we say, well, this course is the course we started, and that's who we are, and that's our denomination or our church or whatever, and we'll never change that belief, like that's the day you ossify, and that's the day that you become incapable of, of truly growing in wisdom and knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what I have for you. Um, good grief, this was going to be the shortest episode yet, and it's probably the longest now. Do not ossify. Go back to the Word. See God with all your heart. And be willing to change your mind on whatever the Bible will reveal to you. And God, by his Spirit, will do that in you. God bless you. We'll see you again here soon.